Live from New York with an original in-depth investigative report, your host, Gary Knoll. Welcome, everyone. An in-depth original investigative report, America's Ticking Nuclear Crisis. The American media's recent coverage of the health risks posed by the nuclear reactor catastrophes in Japan and of previous similar occurrence in the United States with Three Mile Island are truly akin to surrealist fiction. Where else but on Fox would Ann Coulter be presented as an authoritative voice on radiation's health risks. Speaking with Bill O'Reilly, Coulter made the claim that low-level radiation is good for you. In fact, low-level nucleides can strengthen our immune system and help prevent infections. Coulter was referring to studies by Dr. Bernard Cohen at the University of Pittsburgh. However, Cohen's research alleging the health benefits of the radon isotope have been thoroughly refuted as false by teams of scientists from the International Commission on Radiological Protection, an otherwise pro-nuclear industry organization with a tradition of downplaying health risks from nuclear power for decades. Dr. Jay Lear, a frequent scientific expert appearing on Fox's Lou Dobbs and Sean Hannity programs, is the science director for the extremist free market think tank the Heartland Institute. Speaking on Fox last Tuesday, Lear asserted that radiation fallout from the Japanese reactors poses no serious health risks. And during an interview on Bloomberg TV, he further stated the damage to human health and life will be minimal, if at all, due to the exposure from nuclear reactor leaks. The Heartland Institute adamantly denies global warming, and was at the forefront of industry-funded think tanks opposing the Kyoto Protocol. Even in the face of volumes of medical research, the Institute continues to adhere to the illusion that secondhand smoke poses no health risks. Now with China, Germany, and others reevaluating their nuclear power programs, Lear has taken the mantle to try to sell more nuclear power facilities, upwards to 400, if Republicans have their say across the U.S. What the public needs to realize is that the Hartford Institute is one of the nation's citadels, a clearinghouse for junk science to support the most polluting industries, petroleum, coal, nuclear, and tobacco. And we mustn't forget Representative Nevin Devin Nunes, Republican from California, now pressing Washington for 200 new nuclear reactors by 2040 and making the claim that the reactors On the one hand, yes, they may be on a fault line in Southern California, but they're completely safe. Appearing on Neil Cavuto's segment on Fox News, Nunes uttered the absurd statement that no people have died from nuclear power in the United States or been injured, and that the Diablo Canyon nuclear plants sitting near four fault lines in Southern California are completely safe. What could any responsible or reasonable scientist make in response to the delusions of Coulter, Lear, and Nuns. They are simply spokespersons for the pro-nuclear industry and its lobbyists. 
The United States relies on the International Commission on Radiological Protection, the ICRP, Health Risk Model for Radiation Exposure. The ICRP's mathematical modeling has been criticized by independent organizations for minimizing the carcinogenic activity due to low-level internal radioactive isotopes, such as breathing particulate matter from the atmosphere and poisoning from ingesting radioactive materials contained in water, milk, and vegetables. Since the rapid development of atomic weapons, nuclear power in the 1950s, the ICRP has been the principal safeguard for the nuclear industry. ICRP reports would have us believe that the carcinogenic effects from low-level ionizing radiation are negligible, and their research is the mostly heavily relied upon by government energy agencies and the media and the radical pro-nuclear factions such as the Heartland Institute. The fundamental problem is that the ICRP scientific claims regarding radiation risks are erroneous. During a public debate held in Stockholm in April 2009, Dr. Christopher Busby from the ICRP's leading opponent, the European Commission on Radiation Risks, had the ICRP's former scientific secretary, Dr. Jack Valentin, and the lead editor of the organization's radiation risk model conceded that its assessment of absorbed internal nucleides was off by at least two orders of magnitude. That is tremendous. Dr. Busby notes that the ICRP model was never designed to account for catastrophic events such as the one unfolding in Japan. More diligent research focused on internal radiation risks, however, suggests that the order of magnitude is much higher. According to Dr. Busby, the committee's examining radiation risks of internal emitters established by the British government's Department of Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs and the Department of Health in 2001 has put the range of upwards of 10 magnitudes, which explains the high levels of childhood leukemia clusters near nuclear sites. It is understandable that the private nuclear industry and its supporters in the halls of the White House and Congress would gravitate towards the most benign scenarios of the problem of nuclear facilities and only cherry-pick the science that favors the safety of our nuclear facilities. In addition to avoiding panic following the nuclear accident, it also created a public panacea to enable energy corporations to continue doing business as usual in our backyards. Yet all of these efforts to dumb down the American population and air nonsense to soothe citizens' concerns flies in the face of many volumes of scientific literature around the world, proving worst-case scenarios have a higher degree of probability than the government and major media, such as Fox, would have us believe. Researchers such as Dr. John Goffman, a respected professor of molecular cell biology at the University of California for decades, have written extensively on the dangers of underestimating the risk of low-dose ionizing radiation. Writing in an article entitled, Beware the Data Dibblers, he argues, the evidence and logic suggest that low-dose ionizing radiation may well be the most important single cause of cancer, birth defects, and genetic disorders. I'm Gary Knoll. We begin our in-depth, multi-part series on the problems of our deadly nuclear legacy. How do we know how dangerous radiation really is? We know this by looking at actual case studies. Back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, 
People were radiation happy. They got radioactive radium, x-rays for all sorts of ailments. They were exposed to criminally high levels of radiation. Then, of course, large numbers of them came down with cancer. So by looking at the amount of radiation given to women who had, were pregnant, people that had x-rays to the spinal cord, x-rays to the face to treat acne and other kinds of problems, we can now calculate how dangerous radiation was. However, there's a problem. The Hiroshima data is data on hundreds of thousands of Japanese. That outweighed all the other data. The Hiroshima data seemed to indicate that the effects of radiation were exaggerated. And all the radiation studies were done on the basis of Hiroshima data. Now we know the reason why there was a mismatch. The Hiroshima data itself was miscalibrated. By looking at the neutron levels and gamma ray levels, we now know there was a miscalibration between the neutrons and the gamma rays. Now we know that the two levels of radiation are the same. Radiation is perhaps two to five times more dangerous than we previously thought when we first began to set radiation regulations on workers and the general public. At Hiroshima, it was basically the healthy Japanese who survived, the ones who were weak, the ones who were already sick, they died even before the doctors could come to analyze the effects of radiation. It was basically the Japanese who were already robust, already healthy with a vibrant immune system. They lived long enough to be recorded by the American doctors at Hiroshima. And so for all these reasons, we now begin to realize that the granddaddy of all radiation studies, the studies done at Hiroshima, were in fact miscalibrated. I believe it's important that we understand the radiation cover-up. By understanding this cover-up and its historical background, we will be able to better appreciate the talking heads that we're now seeing in the media, all of whom to be of a pro-nuclear position, suggesting not to worry about the low levels of radiation that are coming across and hitting people in Hawaii and in California, that you have nothing to worry about. Yes, if you want to take an iodine pill, that's fine. but don't go to extremes. Let's not panic anyone. After all, we have a long history in the United States of having the safest imaginable nuclear industry. We've had no major accidents, and even the one we did have was long ago. wouldn't happen today, and there was no deaths, no injuries. Not a single person got sick from that. Really? Let us examine the facts in greater detail. The adverse effects of radiation on human health are now of increasing public concern since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, and because of the recent episodes in Japan. It's hard to believe that the very existence of penetrating radiation, such as X-rays and gamma rays emitted by radioactive materials, so familiar to us today, had never even been heard of until a little over 100 years ago. In November of 1895, a German physicist, William Conrad Rodigen accidentally discovered a new form of light that was able to penetrate the human body and provide pictures of the bones in his hands. He named the light that enabled him to see through the body x-rays. And when he announced his findings in December 1895, his famous manuscript on a new kind of ray created a worldwide sensation of unprecedented magnitude. From his discovery of x-rays signaling the birth of medical radiation, Wilhelm Conrad received the first Nobel Prize for Physics in 1901. In his honor, the unit of 
radiobiology that measures radiation is in his name. Experimenting with an early form of cathode ray tube similar to present-day television tubes, he found that where the cathode rays, electrons, accelerated by a few thousand volts, struck the front of the tube, a faint luminescent spot appeared, emitting a highly penetrating form of radiation that could produce an image on a photographic film or a photorescent screen. The clinical potential of x-rays for both diagnosis and therapy was recognized at once. Skin lesions were easily healed, and more powerful equipment, multiple therapy beams, and radium would gradually evolve to treat deeper lesions. Within weeks after his announcement of his discovery, scientists and physicians all over the world began using similar cathode ray tubes to take pictures of what were previously invisible bones and organs in the human body. And x-rays rapidly became the predominant tools of medical practice that they are today. But the radiation cover-up began early. And what is not widely known is that, according to the journal Radiation Research, within months of his discovery of x-rays, severe adverse effects were reported, but not publicized. As a result, over the next 20 years, fluoroscopic examinations and their operators would suffer lethal skin carcinomas. Later case reports would appear concerning leukemia in radiation workers and infants born with severe mental retardation after their mothers had been given pelvic and radiotherapy early in pregnancy. Fluoroscopic and radiotherapy for benign disorders continued to be used with abandon until authoritative reports were published on the adverse effects of ionizing radiation by the U.S. and Great Britain in 1956. The first major article was Delayed Effects of External Radiation Exposure, a Brief History, by R.W. Miller, published in Radiation Research. And again, many of us are familiar with the fluoroscopic examinations used routinely and repetitively on children, for example, when you went to a doctor in the 1950s. Or let's say you went into a shoe store and you put your foot into this little box and lo and behold, you could see the outline of all your bones in your foot. Later, this was described by the Food and Drug Administration as a rather frivolous application of ionizing radiation, a cell's ploy with fairly high exposures. That was according to talk Dr. Thomas Shope, Deputy Division Director for the Center for Devices and Radiological Health at the FDA. In February, and this is according to FDA Consumer Reports, in 1896, believing that x-rays were somehow connected with the luminescence of the spot from which the x-ray emerged, the French physicist Henry Becquel found that certain minerals containing uranium also emitted a penetrating form of radiation that could blacken a photographic film and that did not seem to diminish in intensity over time. Thus, radioactivity was discovered to exist in nature, a powerful form of previously hidden energy that would be released half a century later in the fashion of a fission or splitting of a uranium atom to produce the first nuclear reactor and the first nuclear bomb. Tragically, we were misled by the lack of serious side effects of the low radiation doses used for individual chest X-rays to greatly underestimate by hundreds of thousands of times the adverse effects of prolonged internal exposure to inhaling or ingesting fission products. Thus, our government 
allowed strontium-90 and other radioactive elements to be released into the environment from nuclear tests and reactors for decades on the basis of the mistaken mild comparison with a brief diagnostic x-ray. When it comes to nuclear power, people tend to fear the worst-case scenario, a large-scale Chernobyl-type meltdown that spews high-level doses of radiation across thousands of miles. But recent evidence shows that the dangers of nuclear power may be more insidious and far more dangerous than even such a tragic accident suggests. By one estimate, the low-level radiation caused by atomic weapons testing and nuclear power plants has claimed the lives of some 9 million Americans over the years and has harmed countless others. I have independently analyzed the data from Dr. Ernest Sternglass, Dr. Jay Gould, and others in the field to determine the figure 9 million is accurate. Granted, most scientists did not understand the full impact of low-level radiation when nuclear power got its start. Early studies of Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors showed that high doses of radiation from bomb blasts could cause severe health problems, but until recently, scientists assumed that small doses of radioactive fallout would do little or no harm. Today, statistics show that low-level radiation may have done far more damage over the years than previously thought which is all the more important because of how much low-level radiation is being emitted now from the Japanese plant and plumes that go into the air and will travel in whichever direction the wind is blowing. That means that continued operation of any one of the 104 American civilian nuclear reactors does irreversible harm to future generations as well as those living in their near vicinity. As early as 1943, over half a century ago, nuclear physicists Enrico Fermi, Robert Oppenheimer, and Edward Teller recognized the lethal nature of low-level radiation from atmospheric contamination. The book Deadly Deceit, Low-Level Radiation, a High-Level Cover-Up by Dr. Jay Gould and Dr. Benjamin Goldman reports that these scientists speculated that if we could not develop an atomic bomb in time, it would still be possible to kill millions of Germans by dumping strontium-90, which concentrates dangerously and irretrievably in human bone marrow over the German landmass. Their reasoning was based on animal experiments, the results of which remained classified until 1969. The rise in childhood leukemia and other forms of cancer following the large series of nuclear bomb tests in the 1950s and early 60s by the United States, the Soviet Union, Britain, and France, together with the rise of septicemia in young adults 30 to 40 years old in the United States, illustrates the fact that the damage to the cells of the immune system that fight cancer cells and bacteria and viruses occur as a result of the inhalation and ingestion of fission products such as strontium-90, not only did childhood leukemia and other forms of cancer deaths result from exposure during early development in the mother's womb and the years of infancy, but also infections that led to a rise in premature births and in death due to all causes during infancy above the normal expected rate. These deaths took place both in the first months of life, shown by the data published in the United States and England in 1995 by Canadian professor of pediatrics, R.K. White, and in the first year after birth, as had been found by 
Dr. E.J. Sternglass, University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, in direct relation to the concentration of strontium-90 in the pasteurized milk. And these studies show that the excess pneumonia and influenza death of the one-day-to-one-year-old age group, beginning with the first USSR test in 1959 and the U.S. Nevada test starting in 1951, with a sharp decline after the end of the U.S and Soviet test in 1963. By 1958, two of the world's greatest scientists, Dr. Linus Pauling, who won his second Nobel Prize for a book predicting that the 150 megatons of explosive power released by the 1958 would produce one million seriously defective children in an equal number of fetal and neofetal deaths, and Professor Andrea Sakharov, the inventor of the Soviet hydrogen bomb, both warned that the ingestion of bomb test fission products would cause harm to millions of hormonal and immune systems. The damage to the immune system by fission products that concentrate in the bone and, <clears throat> excuse me, and irradiate the white blood cells originating in the bone marrow for extended periods of time is further supported by the anonymous rise in the mortality rates of young men and women in the age groups 25 to 44 in the United States born during the height of the nuclear weapons testing in the atmosphere. As for the case of neonatal and infant death, a large excess number of all deaths due to all causes occurred for those born in 1949 to 1950, following the first Soviet atmospheric test in Siberia, which rained out mainly in northern hemisphere areas. Relative to the normal decline since 1935, some 500,000 excess deaths occurred for males and 230,000 for females by the end of the 1990s. Such a rise in the death rate for individuals exposed to fallout in the early period of development was predicted by Sakharov, who warned in a 1958 article that radioactive strontium-90, particularly massively produced in the hydrogen bombs that he helped develop, would lead to worldwide epidemics. He warned that not only would those exposed to fission products in early development have weakened immune systems, but that fallout would cause bacteria and viruses to mutate more rapidly into deadly strains. An example is found in the case of Lyme's disease that began in Connecticut in the area close to the Hadman Neck and Millstone nuclear plants that began operating in the early 1970s and which had some of the largest reported airborne diseases excuse me, releases of nuclear fission products. In his memoirs, Sakharov describes how after the success of his first hydrogen bomb test and with the results of animal tests, he worried so much about the biological consequences of nuclear testing that he calculated that for every 50 megatons of explosive power, it would accelerate the deaths of 500,000 to 1 million persons worldwide. Now, although neonatal death in the first month of life as well as death of infants due to pneumonia and influenza declined sharply after the end of the large-scale atmospheric testings in 1963. Total infant mortality for ages one day to one year due to all causes did not decline all the way down to the expected rate of the 1935 to 1950 rate for the U.S. However, after the end of testing, it did decline back to the expected low levels in states that no longer had nuclear power plants. This is illustrated by the case of Wyoming, heavily exposed to Nevada fallout, but where there was no nuclear power plant, 
and where the infant mortality rate had declined from a high of 30 in 1962 to the expected rate of close to 6 per thousand live births by the early 1980s. This is in sharp contrast to the pattern of Maryland, whose border is just 25 miles south of Three Mile Island nuclear plant, where a major accident occurred in 1979. Five miles south of the Peach Bottom nuclear plant with a third plant, namely the Calvert Cliffs plant in Maryland itself, only 40 miles south of Baltimore. Thus, the Maryland rate had only declined to a rate of 10 deaths per thousand live births from a closely similar high to that of Wyoming in the early 1960s, more than double the expected rate of less than four per thousand. By 1999, the gap between the observed and expected infant death rates for the United States since 1950 represented some one million infants dying in the first year of life, apparently due to the synergistic effect of fission products and other forms of air and chemical pollution that Rachel Carson had anticipated in her book, Silent Spring. For more than 45 years, this information has been available, but has virtually been either ignored or challenged. By 1962, Rachel Carson wrote in in the prophetic Silent Spring that the sudden emergence of massive amounts of ionizing radiation could make other toxic chemicals even more dangerous. The great sensitivity of breast cancer to the low-level fission products released by nuclear plants is most clearly shown by an enormous unintended human experiment involving the cities of Philadelphia on the East Coast and San Francisco on the West Coast of the United States. As a graph of breast cancer death rates for women over 65 in the two cities for the 1980s and 90s shows. The rates were similar and rising in both cities into 1986 when an accident in December of 1985 forced a shutdown of Rancho Seco, which became permanent in 1989, the only nuclear plant operating near San Francisco, some 70 miles east of the city. At the same time, two nuclear plants began operating near Philadelphia in 1986, Limerick Unit 1 in nearby Pottstown and Hope Creek Creek in southern New Jersey, in addition to six other reactors within 75 miles that had begun commercial operations since 1974. Now, beginning in 1987, breast cancer rates declined 18% in San Francisco, while they rose 18% in Philadelphia. and those were record high death rates by 1989 and 1990 in Philadelphia. As still another plant was opened near Philadelphia in 1990, Limerick Unit 2, the gap continued to widen until for a few years more. In 1995-1997, the Philadelphia breast cancer death rate exceeded that of San Francisco by 67%. Women in the two cities had continued to smoke, to use chemicals and herbicides, as well as hair coloring, and all other risk factors being equal. They continued to be exposed to automobile and diesel exhaust, as well as carbon dioxide, sulfate particulate matter, nitrogen oxides from local fossil fuel power plants, and incinerators producing fine particulates in the air. The only difference, I repeat, the only difference that had suddenly occurred within the few years was the end of nuclear plant operations near the city in San Francisco with a reduced breast rate of cancer and deaths, while the nuclear plant operations had increased near the other city of Philadelphia with the increased breast cancer death rate. 
Moreover, there were no large nuclear accidents near these two cities after 1986, such as Three Mile in 1979, that might have caused different degrees of stress that could affect the immune response and thus possibly cause rise in cancer death, as has been suggested in the literature for the Three Mile Island rise in local cancer rates. Thus, the crucial synergistic role of fission products, low-level, acting together with all the other pollutants appears to be the only explanation greatly strengthening the evidence that we have vastly understated the biological damage from even small nuclear releases on a regular basis into our air, our food, our milk, our drinking water, exactly as Rachel Carson had warned. The nuclear powers chose to ignore these warnings, and by 1945 and 1963, they released into the atmosphere fission products equivalent to the explosion of 40,000 Hiroshima bombs, each with the explosive power of 15,000 tons of TNT, producing worldwide fallout, with French and Chinese atmospheric tests adding to the fallout until the last Chinese atmospheric test in 1980. The United States alone, with the explosion of 124 atomic and hydrogen bombs in Nevada in the 1950s and early 60s, accounted for one-third of this huge total. As a result, every part of the continent was showered with radioactive iodine, sesame, strontium, and other radionuclides known for causing lethal consequences in test animals. <clears throat> the true impact of this orgy of atmospheric bomb testing was revealed by the Canadian pediatrician who I cited a few moments ago in an article published in the prestigious British Medical Journal on February 8, 1992, Professor White noted that such bomb tests appeared to be the only possible explanation for an excess of 320,000 infant deaths to be found in the United States and the United Kingdom in the 1950s and 60s. While Dr. White did not ask what happened to those babies who survived birth in those years, Dr. Gould, in a subsequent letter published in the British Medical Journal, March 21, 1992, exploring the implications of Dr. White's startling revelations, observed that the answer can be found in the data showing the rise in America since 1950 of the percentage of live births weighing less than 5.5 pounds. At the same time, there was a corresponding rise in the amount of radioactive strontium found in human bone in those years. These reports will indicate what happened to those underweight babies. In Nevada, for example, where the U.S. bomb test began in 1951, Dr. Gould found that the percentage of premature underweight babies more than doubled in that year from the 1950 rate and has remained at above average levels ever since, even in the years after 1962 when underground testing replaced the more dangerous atmospheric testing. The large increases in neonatal and infant mortality above the normally expected rates both in the United States, Great Britain, and other industrially developed countries is explained by the damage to the immune and hormonal systems of bone-seeking strontium-90 and its highly radioactive daughter product, which is also deadly uh, to the hormonal system and the glands and will adversely affect both the mother and the developing baby, baby in the mother's womb, yttrium-90. This concentration is particularly serious in the case of the pituitary gland, the master gland of the body. The combination of strontium-90 and yttrium-90 has been found in laboratory studies in an increased risk of premature birth, which is a major cause of underweight birth 
which soared to a peak at the height of the large-scale atmospheric testing in the early 1960s when strontium-90 was found to peak in both milk, the diet, and human bone, as well as in the teeth of newborn babies. A renewed rise in the percentage of babies born below the normal weight of 5.5 pounds began in the mid-1980s following the arrival of the Chernobyl fallout and the rising amount of releases by the growing number of large nuclear plants as discussed in connection with the rise of infant mortality rates. The crowns of deciduous teeth shed by children between the ages of 6 and 12 provide a record of exposure in utero and early childhood. As first mentioned by Dr. Held Rosenthal at the University of Washington School of Dentistry and more recently for the Radiation and Public Health Project by Dr. Harry Shamari, now retired from the University of Waterloo in Canada. And I have studied all of these uh, very comprehensively. And it shows clearly that the more strontium-90 in the teeth, the greater challenge to the immune system. Another important fission product, iodine-131, which accompanies strontium-90, concentrates in the thyroid gland, not only producing thyroid cancer, but also damaging thyroid function that in turn impairs the production of growth hormone in the developing fetus. This effect not only uh, affects the weight in the newborn, but also the normal development of the brain, leading to learning problems later in life, as found in the decline of IQ, school performance. SAT scores some 17 to 18 years later, as shown in a series of articles in the literature. Not only was this effect on the weight and brain function of children found in the years of large-scale atmospheric testing with greatest effects in the early 1960s, it was also found to increase again when major accidents occurred in nuclear plants such as Three Mile Island 1979 and Chernobyl 1986. Moreover, as a study of test scores in Iowa schools recording uniformly since 1935 revealed. Not only did the major bomb test at the time of birth lead to declining school performance, but so did the start of three nuclear power plants in Iowa and adjacent Nebraska in the early 1970s, resulting in scores being much lower than those reached for those born at the height of the atmospheric testing. The damage to the thyroid of the newborn is further supported by a sharp rise of congenital hypothyroidism diagnosed at birth, which rose 50%, that's 50 50% in the United States between the low rate recorded in the period 1981-85 before Chernobyl to a record high, 1992-94. The role of iodine-131 is greatly strengthened by the fact that the area of the U.S. hardest hit by the Chernobyl fallout, namely the Pacific Northwest, shows the largest rise in hypothyroidism cases in 1987 80 uh, 86-87, 23% increase in one year. That had never happened before in American history. And while the Southeast that experienced the lowest measure fallout reported 1% fewer cases. Moreover, a plot for the various regions of the United States shows a dose-response curve that rises most rapidly for the lowest iodine-131 levels and flattens out for the highest levels rather than a linear or straight-line relation between exposure and effect on the thyroid function. This adds further support to the laboratory findings of Dr. Abram Petkow at the Canadian Atomic Energy Laboratory in Penawa, Manitoba, which found that low levels of radiation protracted over periods of hours, days or weeks, are hundreds to thousands of times as damaging to cells as those in the bone marrow or thyroid 
then very short exposures to diagnostic x-rays or the flash of a gamma ray produced by an atomic bomb. He was able to show that such low-level extended exposures involve free radical oxygen damage to cell membranes that become much more efficient than direct damage to the genetic material or DNA in the cell nucleus when fewer and fewer short-lived free radicals are present at a given moment. It explains why the adverse effects on human health of fission products that accumulate in various organs and thus give prolonged exposure involving free radical damage were grossly underestimated by assuming that short, high-dose exposures can be linearly extrapolated to very low, prolonged exposures such as occur from distant bombs or what we're seeing now, reactor accidents, and even smaller permitted releases from normally operating nuclear plants. In essence, what we've been told is don't worry about the small amounts of low-level radiation that are released on a regular basis from the 104 operating nuclear plants. Don't be concerned about the radiation that's coming over the Pacific to California. Don't be worried about that. That's low-level radiation. won't do anything in your body. The actual science from those who study it show just the opposite. It is the low-level radiation that is most dangerous to us. The precedent for dishonest nuclear policymaking was set during the height of the Cold War when President Eisenhower issued a top-secret memorandum that told insiders, quote, keep them confused about the dangers of radiation. Now, with this memo, a policy of fabrication was set at the highest government levels to ensure public acceptance of continued nuclear tests. The deception actually preceded Eisenhower's presidency, beginning with a 1946 accident at Los Alamos, New Mexico, when physicist Dr. Louis Slotin, working with the core of an atomic bomb, was briefly exposed to more than 1,000 rads, more than twice the amount needed to kill a healthy adult. Others nearby were also exposed to high radiation levels, but were denied access to the records. The government, recognizing the accident as a sensitive, potentially damaging issue, decided to suppress the information for fear that the public disclosure would interfere with the bomb test program and the operation of military nuclear reactors already under construction. So our government, with malice aforethought, covered up a major accident. The strategy established the government has chosen to this day to cover up virtually everything it can and to intimidate and silence everyone, every expert, who knows the truth and wants to warn the public. Let me just share a small roll call of some of those truly heroic scientists. Many of them, like Pauling, Sakharov, and Carson, are still unknown. I'll begin with Dr. Carl Morgan, who was the nation's first nuclear health physicist and founder of the Health Division, and who fought a lifelong battle to set safe radiation protection standards. When the Journal of the American Medical Association asked Dr. Morgan for an article on the contribution to medicine of health physicists, it was rejected when he wrote rather briefly that the principal function of the discipline he founded was to find reasons to deny compensation to radiation victims. Another American hero who should be honored was Dr. John Goffman who, as a graduate student in the early 1940s, was the first to isolate workable amounts of plutonium he later became the first head of the biomedical division of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, where most of our nuclear weapons have been designed. He was forced to resign by the Atomic Energy Commission 
when, in 1959, he publicly announced that there was no, I repeat, there was no safe radiation level, and that there would be 20 times more cancers per unit of radiation than anyone had been told. He stated unequivocally and on the record that we were being lied to by virtually everyone in the field about how dangerous low-level radiation was. He stated, It is very clear to me that we find cancer being produced in excess found at very low levels. Government scientists claim that no effects have been observed below 50 or 100 rads, but it simply is not true. Cancer has been demonstrated at 10 rads. The hoax you might have a safe level of radiation is at variance with the evidence. I feel that at least several hundred scientists trained in the biomedical aspects of atomic energy, myself definitely included, are candidates for Nuremberg-type trials for crimes against humanity for our gross negligence and irresponsibility. Now that we know the hazards of low-level radiation, the crime is not experimentation, it's murder. And those are his exact statements. Included among the experts consulted for this particular investigative report are the eminent British epidemiologist Dr. Alex Stewart, who was the first to discover how sensitive the developing fetus is to low-level radiation, and Dr. Thomas Mancuso, Emeritus Professor of Epidemiology, University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Both Dr. Mancuso and Dr. Stewart, who has passed, were asked by the Atomic Energy Commission to study the health effects of workers at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington State. But they were each fired when they came up with what the Atomic Energy Commission regarded as the wrong answers. Since the 1980s, however, the government's cover-up policy has been harder to uphold. Under the Freedom of Information Act, classified information on radiation and death has been taken public. In 1979, for example, an investigative report by Bill Curry of the Washington Post revealed that the United States knew for decades that the instance of leukemia and cancer around the bomb testing site in Nevada far surpassed expectations. He wrote, Officials involved in the U.S. bomb tests feared in 1965 that disclosures of a secret study linking leukemia to radioactive fallout from the bombs could jeopardize further testing and result in costly damage claims. That study, as well as a proposal to examine thyroid cancer rates in Utah, touched off a series of top-level meetings within the old Atomic Energy Commission over how to influence or change the two studies. The document also indicates that the Public Health Service joined the Atomic Energy Commission in reassuring the public about any possible dangers from fallout. Those are his quotes. What he is saying is that, the official, overarching, and all-powerful U.S. Public Health Service, under which all other major health agencies, the FDA, the CDC, all reside, intentionally with malice of forethought, lied to the American public, pathologically lying, along with the completely dysfunctional and immoral Atomic Energy Commission, who has yet to ever be honest on these issues. Very few official epidemiological investigations have been done to study the impact of atmospheric testing. Each year, the U.S. Public Health Service publishes a chart showing an overall decline in mortality rates since 1930, but it never comments on the very obvious flattening out that can be observed in the 1950s and 60s. It has been calculated that from 1930 to 1950, the annual rate of improvement, meaning decline in total death rates, 
after adjusting for aging population, was 2%. And then it changed and went up in the bomb testing years, greater deaths. The consequence to human lives is startling. The cumulative difference between the observed rates after 1950 and what would have been expected if the earlier rate of improvement had continued is approximately 10 million premature deaths. As in the case of the 320,000 excess infant deaths found by Dr. White, the probability that excesses could be due to chance variation is infinitesimal. About 152 million Americans, over, well, a little under half the American population, live close to one of the 104 current operating civilian nuclear power plants, with the largest concentrations in New York, Philadelphia, and Chicago metropolitan area. As a nuclear plant must emit certain amounts of radiation to operate, those living close to a facility are automatically exposed even during normal operations. But what is even more worrisome is the fact that since the reactors are most often located in rural areas near dairy farms, the radioactive iodine gets into the fresh milk, which is then shipped overnight while it's still highly radioactive to urban areas. The mobility of nuclear fission products increases their lethal nature. They can be carried far from the point of origin by wind and rain, as, as we have known from the fallout from major accidents such as Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. Although the normal emission from reactors are small, far below the scale of meltdowns, the cumulative exposure to such emissions over several decades may be more harmful than previously realized. A study conducted at the nuclear weapons plant in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, found that workers who were exposed to very low levels of radiation for many years had a 63% higher leukemia death rate than the general public. The longer the employees were monitored, the higher the leukemia rate. In an interview, Dr. Stephen Wing, one of today's principal authors, drew this conclusion. It has been assumed that the chances of finding an effective exposure at this level would be like a few drops of water in a swimming pool, not enough to be measured. Now we see it looks like it's not a few drops. How many times have we heard, okay, that's Japan. They've had the accident. It cannot happen here. Think not? Many of us believe it could. At 12 o'clock, terrorists flew a plane through Indian Point. Class 9 accident at a nuclear power plant. The dome overpressurizes and cracks. Radiation spews out of the dome. By 2 o'clock, the winds are blowing at 10 to 15 miles an hour. Radiation now is going past the evacuation zone. Heaters and detectors will start to go off scale. At 3 o'clock, large portions of Manhattan are now being doused with radiation. But for the most part, people will carry on their normal affairs, not realizing that they've taken a lethal dose of radiation from the Indian Point nuclear power plant. Radiation cannot be felt, it cannot be seen, it cannot be smelled. All you'd notice was a metallic taste in your mouth. You'd all be trapped. Millions and millions and millions of people. One successful hit. No one would get out. 21 million people. All the children in schools will be bussed out on school buses. Since there are not enough buses to make just one trip, the plan is that there will be multiple trips of school buses. But the public is not supposed to know. At 4 o'clock, the governor comes on television 
to make the announcement that evacuation plans have been made to evacuate people 10 miles from the Indian Point nuclear power plant. Well, sorry about that. Radiation has already soared over Manhattan. The entire logical structure of the plan is fundamentally flawed and not even honest. They don't plan for repairs because they can't. At 6 o'clock, the President of the United States comes on television to announce that a major terrorist attack has taken place at Indian Point. However, the evacuation plans for New York City are not in place because New York City is outside the evacuation zone. What happens to the people in Manhattan? There's chaos. People don't know which direction the cloud went. There are going to be tens of millions of people fleeing the contaminated areas. Everyone gets into their cars and spontaneously evacuates with or without an emergency evacuation plan. The Long Island Express is the world's largest parking lot. People in the outlying areas are not going to have the social infrastructure. They're not going to have the beds, the foods to handle the millions of people that are going to be flooding out of the New York metropolitan area. And they're going to be covered with radiation. At that point, perhaps farmers may pick up shotguns, just like in the 1950s, to keep the New York City slickers out. Within 24 to 48 hours, people would be experiencing severe nausea and start vomiting and developing severe diarrhea, and they would die within days or a week or two of acute radiation sickness, like the way AIDS patients die. New York would be, it would really be a long-term intensive care unit with people all waiting to die. And the people in Japan were led to believe that they had the most advanced, safe nuclear facilities on Earth. They were fully aware of the problem of earthquake and the ring of fire that they're in and the tectonic plate shifting. They also were aware of tsunamis and they were aware of the potential meltdowns. They wouldn't have believed two weeks ago that what they're experiencing now was possible. Well, it is. To hear the nuclear industry tell it power plants are safe, clean, inexpensive, and essential. The companies often use soothing words to describe their operations. The radiation is measured in sunshine units, they say, and its effects are no worse than a suntan. One campaign even suggests that a little radiation boosts the immune system. What they neglect to mention is that the real danger from low-level radiation comes when tiny amounts of fission products are ingested and become concentrated in certain organs, like the fetal thyroid or bone marrow, as was anticipated by Pauling and Sakharov. It was not until 1972 that we had a full understanding of the biochemical mechanisms underlying the damage done by ingesting nucleides. As a result of the discoveries of a biophysicist named Dr. Abraham or Abram Petkoff, of the Canadian Atomic Energy Commission. Now, here's where it's interesting, and here's where virtually all their arguments, and Coulter included all of them, are completely discredited. Working with an animal cell membrane, which he noted typically required as much as 500 rads to be destroyed, he was amazed to find, quite by accident, they could be far more easily destroyed overnight by a solution of slightly radioactive salts measured at less than one-tenth of one rad. Now, let me repeat this. All the conventional scientists, nuclear physicists included, said, oh, it would require 500 rads. And he's saying, no, one-tenth of one rad. 
This led to our current understanding that chronic internal exposure to very low doses of radiation, such as the form strontium-90 lodged in the bone marrow, promotes the formation of free radicals, which are particles with an extra negative charge and which, by the force of electrical attraction, can penetrate cell membranes. In this way, blood cells making up the immune system can be damaged and lose their ability to fight off infection agents or mutagenic cancer cells. Hence, you end up with either autoimmune conditions, pneumonia, or die from simple infections. Dr. Petkoff found that at high levels of radiation, the many free radicals negated one another and did less damage per unit of radiation than at low levels. When a free radical can be most efficient and find and destroy a cell, thus he set, settled a long-standing debate among nuclear scientists about the shape of the dose-response curve to radiation. It was not linear. I repeat, it is not linear. And virtually all the apologists for the nuclear accident and those wanting us to go forward with our clean nuclear programs are either misinformed, disingenuous, or they are on the side of the nuclear industry. An assumption that had not had encouraged the hope that there would be some level of radiation low enough to keep it safe. There is no level of radiation low enough to be safe. I repeat, there is no such thing as a safe level of radiation. I'm Gary Knoll. That is simply the first of an ongoing, original, in-depth reporting series. And on our next program, part two. What physicians should know about the biological effects of ingested vision products.